Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with co-host Ellen McGirt. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Emmanuel Faber, the CEO of food giant Danone. I was very excited about this interview because I don't think there's a big company in the world that is more serious about its social impact than Danone. I think you're right about that, Alan. Danone is on the path to becoming a B Corp, a certification that holds companies to really rigorous standards for environmental and social impact. It really touches everything that a corporation does and how it operates. Assuming it gets there, and Faber is pretty determined, Danone will be the largest B Corp in the world. Yeah, and that's a big thing. I mean, right now, most of the B Corp are smaller companies. Patagonia is a well-known example. Ben and Jerry's is an example. Eileen Fisher, who we had on this podcast earlier in the year, is an example. But big companies have kind of shied away from it. I think uh, Unilever at one point thought about it and decided it's too much work. You know, every CEO that we talk to agrees that in order to take these social responsibilities seriously, you have to have metrics, you have to have measures, and you have to be held accountable. And that's what the B Corp was designed to do. But I don't think most big companies are ready to move quite that far yet. I think we may be surprised. I'm not sure. It is a tremendous amount of work. What I'm hearing and what I know you're hearing is a willingness to consider doing the work. Now, Danone had a little bit of a leg up. Several subsidiaries that it owned were already B Corp. So it it gave it some confidence in, in what needed to happen in order to be able to be in compliance. About 30% of Danone's global sales are already covered by B Corp certification. But getting to the, the rest of the 70%, that's the job. Well, Ellen, let's dive right in. The first question I asked Faber was, why did you decide to become a B Corp? We want Danone to become a B Corp because we believe that in the world in which we live, and certainly including the world in which we are entering right now, there will be an increased attention paid to the ethos of companies and of brands by consumers, governments, employees, civil society, and many more. And so we believe that it will provide a competitive advantage to us. And what about your shareholders, your owners? I mean, are they saying, hey, wait a minute, your responsibility is to us, not to all these other stakeholders? We would totally agree that our responsibility is to our shareholders. But that responsibility can not actually be fulfilled without taking care of many other stakeholders. And this is even more true in the current COVID situation. We've actually had that discussion with our shareholders some years ago. So it's not a new agenda. And this year we say we want to be a B Corp by 25 now because we believe there is a case for accelerating the certification. Yeah, so this is really interesting to me. If you go back three months or so when the COVID crisis really hit and it was clear that it was going to have a profound impact on the economy, I sort of wondered whether companies were going to stop talking about all this stakeholder capitalism stuff because they had an economic crisis on their hands and they had to focus on the bottom line and their finances were falling apart and they had to deal with that. But you're saying that COVID-19 has caused you to accelerate your movement toward B Corp status. Yes, and I think that if you look at the reality, not the way we would like to look at it, but the way it is, 
there are many stakeholders jumping in into the scope of our business, whether we like it or not. When governments are just shutting down borders, forbidding exports or imports, uh, when they're forcing localization, when in Argentina you have nationalizations of a soy company, and we are buyers of soy in the US and in many other places, well, this is in our ecosystem. We like it or we don't like it. But it's very clear that when health authorities are closing entire channels and sending everyone home out of the factories, there are these stakeholders there. And on the other side, I was impressed by the way many large brands and companies have actually crossed the same border to go into supporting with donations, big campaigns, uh, sometimes even retooling factories to produce and support the healthcare and the overall health and response by authorities. So you can see that there is here a blurred situation where it's not like there is business and the business of business is business. This is not true, has actually never been true. But this is really the moment where taking care of the position, the understanding, the tactics and strategies of all these stakeholders will be the best way to maneuver your own strategy to create shareholder value. So you're saying stakeholder capitalism is not a choice, it's a necessity. It's a fact. Yeah. And so if that's the fact, why isn't there a rush of companies to become B corporations? I mean, you're going to be the largest and pretty much alone out there. Why aren't we seeing much more of this going on? For many reasons. One is that I think that it's still an early stage movement. And we're suddenly probably among the largest companies to really look seriously at this. But I can tell you from discussions with peer CEOs of our industry and beyond that many of them are interested. I can tell you about some of the largest banks on this planet thinking about it, insurance companies. You've seen media like The Guardian in the UK becoming a B Corp. And, you know, we've been talking to them for some time. And so I think there is a movement, first of all, and and it's a growing one, but obviously it's still a small one. The second aspect is that I don't think you need to be a B Corp to do stakeholders capitalism. You look at France, for instance. France has changed their law. The company law today says that any company needs to have its board considering the environmental and social consequences of its decisions when it's making decisions. This is a company law now. That's the law. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you need to answer all of them, but you need to take them into consideration. And so you can see that everyone company has to make their own choice in terms of governments, its cultures, etc., to decide how they want to handle it. But yes, it is a fact. But I think the question that skeptics raise about that is, sure, every company has an ESG statement that they put out on an annual basis that says, we're going to do this for the environment and we're going to do this for society. And But a lot of times people ask, well, wait a minute, who's going to hold them accountable? What happens if you don't make your targets? What happens if you miss those numbers? What's the system of measurement and accountability that lets us know this is all real? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a question that will be growing. And this is why we have decided to go the B Corp route and now the Entreprise à Mission route in France, which is basically, in a way, the equivalent of the public benefit corporation system in the US with a mission to deliver on four objectives on health, on planet, on people, on inclusiveness of our growth model. Those four objectives are going to be monitored and reported by an independent third party, PwC, will issue a report 
that will be monitored and observed and challenged by an independent committee of experts that are going to be appointed by the board, but there are people from outside that will report directly to the shareholders every year publicly. So it means we have those four objectives. We will have key performance indicators and there will be an annual report about the progress that we're making. Well, if you're curious like I am about what it takes to become a B Corp and in particular, what it takes to become an anti-racist B Corp, we have an expert here to walk us through that. Anthea Kelsick is the co-CEO of B-Lab US and Canada. She's the one who knows how to get certified and what it all means. Anthea, welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you, Ellen, so much for having me. So B-Lab has been in the stakeholder capitalism business long before it was cool, long before the business roundtable. Are you super popular now? Is there a big rush of companies looking for information about B Corps? There is, in fact. I think in the wake of the business roundtable announcement last fall, where there is a transition to the purpose of the corporation being around delivering value to stakeholders, we saw an upsurge in interest in B Corps there. And particularly in the wake of COVID-19, as well as this recent awakening to racial justice, we have seen companies come to us en masse asking, what do we do? I think there is similarly around this awakening to racial injustice, there's an awakening to what is the role of business in society? And I think there is no better tool than the B Corp certification to help companies measure and also manage how they deliver that value. It's one thing to say it, it's a completely different thing to do it. And being armed with the right tools to put that thinking into practice is so incredibly important right now. And so yes, we have more companies than we can handle at the moment coming to us, asking for advice, but also doing the assessment itself and applying for certification. So what are some of the strategies that you're using to capitalize on this moment, on this attention? on the concept that you can care more about the world than just profits? I mean, we are seeing an incredible amount of energy around stakeholder capitalism, obviously made popular, as you say, uh, last fall with the wake of the business roundtable, and then even maybe a year before that with, with some of Larry Fink's letters. But as you say, B Lab and B Corps in particular have been practicing stakeholder capitalism for almost 15 years now. And in the wake of this moment, that spirit of a company's purpose being delivering value to all stakeholders and not just shareholders, although shareholders are certainly part of the equation, it creates a very powerful framework to think about how you then deliver value to black people or people of color within that stakeholder framework. And so we already have a group of companies who operate within this mindset. And now we can add this, this layer or this filter on of Great. You think specifically about how am I delivering value as a company to my workers, to my community, to my supply chain, to to the environment. And now how do you think about that through the lens specifically of black people? How are my black workers being supported in this moment? How diverse is my supply chain? How many black owned businesses are part of that supply chain? How am I investing in the black communities that I operate in or where I have the most impact? And so, again, Having that framework of thinking of the purpose of the company being truly about delivering value to stakeholders creates this very easy and straight line pathway to how you then think about it through the lens of specific populations and like the focus on black people that we're seeing today. Right. So employee benefits look different if you've got a population of people who've been shut out of financial markets for generations, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah, exactly. 
And we see incredible innovations from our B Corps on that front as well. And we have one in particular, there's a business innovation called open hiring, which may have come across your desk at some point, but it is pioneered by one of our B Corps called Grayston Bakery, which is actually just outside of New York City. They are best known for the brownies that you would eat inside of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Um, But they were founded on the premise of not making brownies or baking. They were founded on the premise of employing people and specifically employing people who have been traditionally cut out of the workforce. And so they pioneered a system called open hiring, um, which is a practice where anyone can be hired regardless of their background. And so it allows people to come in who have come from homeless populations or people who've been formerly incarcerated or others who are automatically rejected from so many hiring pools because of what they're past. And so this practice is a, it's an innovation. They have a, a center of excellence for open hiring and they've allowed that to be shared with other B Corps. And so we have companies like The Body Shop who now use open hiring as well for part of their hiring practices. And we've seen it proliferate within B Corps as a way to, again, engage with this particular stakeholder on opening up, delivering value to workers within their companies. So last question, I'm curious if you are anticipating any future benefits of B Corp besides the obvious ones. I'll give you an example that came up at a recent CEOI call. It seems that there are certain banks, particularly in Europe, but it seems to be more widespread, who are open to renegotiating interest rates on corporate debt if companies are demonstrating that they're aligned around certain sustainability goals, particularly the environment, but there's probably more to come there. That seems like a pretty tangible thing that might be coming down the road as a best practice. Anything else comes to mind? Yeah, I think the one you mentioned is certainly one of the ones that we speak to most, particularly as we talk to larger corporations who are interested in B Corp certification. I think the one that is always has always been true and is certainly becoming more true now is in talent and not only talent acquisition, but in talent retention. When we have people who are employees of B Corps who live that experience and then have an opportunity or have some desire to move on to other organizations, those people are demanding a difference inside of the companies that they work for and are creating those changes inside those corporations. And so I think talent is a a huge part of the equation. And then the other piece that we are starting to see is collective action. And so even if I take the example of the boycott of Facebook by groups of corporations coming together to take action, this is a phenomenon that we see often inside of the B Corp community. And most recently, about 700 B Corps out of the 3,500 that exist around the world have come together to create something called Net Zero 2030, which is about eliminating their carbon footprint by 2030 and doing that collectively. And so the beauty of that is they create scaled impact and they also hold each other accountable. And so when you see companies acting on an individual basis, that's one level of impact. When you see companies coming together, that's when real change happens. And that's when you also see the ripple effects across other companies, other sectors, into other places inside of our economic system. And I think that is a huge piece of what we're seeing companies come to us for is how do we become part of something bigger than just ourselves? And that's something we've certainly had to offer for the last 15 years. Well, that just sounds like the coolest corporate club I've ever heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Come on down. We're ready. We're ready. 
I'm here with Joe Ukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, you and I have had a number of conversations about the growing demands from multiple stakeholders, employees, customers, the communities in which companies operate, as well as shareholders. In a crisis like this, all those demands just become louder and more emotional. How can you balance them? Alan, this is actually the time to prove that the sweeping statements around serving a broad cross-section of stakeholders are genuine. I mean, the trade-offs are less acute in a good economy where growth is ample. It's in times like these where you truly have to live the principles, making the right decisions to take care of your key stakeholders in the interests of maximizing the long-term value of the enterprise, even if that comes at the expense of shorter-term quarterly results. So you don't think stakeholder capitalism is gonna slide backwards during this crisis? You think it's gonna move forwards? We all have an obligation as a collective business community to make certain that it moves forward and to prove to those in society who are skeptical of our intentions that we genuinely mean it and that we're doing everything in our power to bring it to life in these most challenging circumstances. Joe, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm back with Emmanuel Faber, the CEO of Danone. So uh, take this down to a practical level. Tell me some things that Danone does differently because you are going to be a B corporation or because of the mission entreprise, what real difference does it make in the company? There are probably two ways in, in uh, answering on this. One is that we have a set of indicators and we believe we need to accelerate on them. We are accelerating our climate action. We announced a $2 billion investment on climate because we believe that's the resilience of our food system that's at stake, our own, the business of Danone here, which is at stake. We've announced that we have capped and peaked our carbon emissions, including agriculture, and that we are uh, now going to go down that peak till carbon neutrality. We've published an EPS, an earning per share post-carbon for the first time ever, and we are the only company that did that this year. We are consulting all our employees, 100,000 employees, every year on the strategic agenda for the company and its priorities. And they report, 26 of them elected by them, report directly to the board without even me as the chairman and the CEO of the company. So they go to our independent directors and they speak directly with them because we believe the engagement of our people is really creating a difference for the future of the company. So these are the sort of very concrete things that we're doing. Having those objectives gathered into the mission and the mission being part of the constitution is allowing us to have a real strategic conversation about it. So it allows me to have an incentive in my own bonus about CO2 reduction, uh, an incentive on my own bonus to have the engagement rate of our employees to change the way the company does. So it's basically allowing you to have a structured conversation and an action plan that does not depend on the fact that it is me and tomorrow it will be somebody else because it's in the constitution of the company to do that. So we are going to be able to make trade-offs in a much more open manner 
than just relying on the interest or the passion of one of us for one topic as yeah. opposed to another one. And you, you said something very interesting at the beginning of this interview, which is you were doing all these things, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it gives the company a competitive advantage. Absolutely. And that's the reason that you're out in front on this, because you think it will help the known as a business to be forward-leaning. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you take the example of our sector of food is one where there is a revolution, frankly. In a number of countries, I mean, a vast number of countries, people are just reconsidering the role of brands when it comes to food. They had entrusted and their parents had entrusted brands with the guarantee that the food they were eating was the right food. They found out that it was not always true. They found out some of the unintended consequences, diabetes, obesity, uh, drowning resources, natural resources, et cetera, et cetera. And her whole generation is now questioning that. And frankly, it's not only in New York or in London or Paris. It's all over the place, in Indonesia, in China, in Russia, even in Africa, et cetera. And that generation is going out of the way we do business normally. So there is a need to rebuild trust. And again, I think that big brands have a place whereas they, they've lost market share for the last decade in the FMCG world. But I think that those big brands that are ready to be brands on a mission, like an entreprise à mission, on a mission, they can make a change. And what we currently see in the COVID crisis is exactly that opportunity with yeah. large brands coming back into the preference of people if they behave properly. Yeah. And do you think people are willing to pay more for food products from companies that they feel are doing good in the world? Either they would pay more or they would buy more. That I so know. It, so it will make a difference. Yes. But you see more and more companies heading in this direction. Now, you said it was always the right thing to do. Why is it happening now? You mean happening for us? For in general, in the world. Uh, look, when the Business Roundtable put out a, a statement on the purpose of the corporation in the 1990s, it pretty much echoed the Milton Friedman line that the social responsibility of businesses to make a profit. So something has changed here in recent years, and I'm curious why. Well, I think it's very easy to sort of post-rationalize why it's happening now as opposed to before, other than to say that I think that a whole generation, including myself, I mean, I've been raised in the mountains. So environment and nature is fundamental for me. I only discovered what CO2 meant really in terms of business in 2008. Yeah, that's only 12 years ago. By 2009, we had decided that for 15,000 managers of Danone, CO2 reduction would be part of incentive. So the big question is, when you discover something, how long does it take for you to act? Yeah. But then only 2008, you look at things like plastic. Plastic has been a conversation for a long time. It only became a global topic 18 months ago. Why? That's it. So there are sort of tipping points. And we are in an interconnected world where I think social media is making local things completely universal. And therefore, that brings conversations to tables of boards of companies and governments to address. That wasn't the case probably yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah, we're seeing a great example of that right now in the protests over racial injustice in the wake of the George Floyd killing in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we will see more of that. And this is why I think, again, that 
having the right governance structure for the company and, and the way we interact and we're able to respond to challenges and situations like these ones overall is going to be, again, a competitive advantage in the long term. You know, I think you're right, based on the conversations I'm having with CEOs, that there are a lot of other companies that are thinking hard about this and trying to figure out the path forward. But you're far ahead of most of them. I wonder if we could end with some advice for those companies. Like, how do you chart this purpose-driven path? And what are the pitfalls and what are the lessons you've learned along the way that you can share with them? Ah, that's a big responsibility. <laughs> um, I think, first of all, that you, I mean, at least what I can say is, what about, is about us. You have to be conscious of where you started. Why is your company existing? Your company does not exist to make profit. It's not true. Making profit is the way for your company to continue to exist. But the reason it exists is because it has a social impact. It has a positive reason for people to engage with you, your customers, your suppliers, your employees, and even your shareholders, of course, to begin and to end with. But this is really looking at the company from the world standpoint, not from our corporate boards or corporate executive leadership team standpoint. Start looking at your company from outside, from the sides that you don't like to be hearing from the guys that have you know, critics about your company and your system, and generous listening to that. So reconnect on why you exist and connect with people that have a different view than yours. I think this is really where the case for change might occur. The second is listen to your younger generations. Listen to your kids. I have. You know, one of the, I can tell you, one of the big things, I was talking about the CO2 thing. Do you know what we did? In 2009, we asked a couple of my colleagues here to be able to talk to their kids. And we shot a film. Those kids were anywhere between five years old to 15 years old. And we had that film talking about the planet and pollution and what Danone did good or did not good and what their doubts were. And that was 15 years ago. And that film was sent to all the managing directors in Danone, Hmm. 200 people leading Hmm. the company. It changed their perspective. These were their kids talking to their dads and their moms. Very simple thing that you need to reconnect yourself as a human being, not a corporate guy with a tie and, you know, I do things and then after doing profit, I would do good. No, that doesn't work. We, We don't have time for that anymore. And people are fed up and none of your young employees will stay if you are that kind of leader for long. And so there is a case also for, I think, employer preference and talent war is there. You cannot imagine the amount of people that are queuing to join us from universities because of the kind of things that we're doing right now. So again, it's back to competitive advantage, but you have to look at it from a different lens. And then take risk, you know, deep breathe (laughs) and start moving, you know. And then yeah. gradually it will work. And, and frankly, we are just only starting and that's our story and there are many other interesting stories around us, including much smaller companies moving. And I think it's really for each company to really, each leader to create that story that has to be unique. No one can be a model for anyone else, I think. That's beautifully put and passionately put. Uh, Emmanuel Faber, thank you so much for joining us on Leadership Next. I hope people pay attention to the lessons you've uh, given them there. Thank you for the support. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, 
along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 